Hello and welcome to the Swan Song Project podcast. My name is Ben Buddy Slack and I'm the founder of the Swan Song Project and the host of this podcast. The Swan Song Project is a charity and we help people living with terminal illnesses or dealing with bereavement to write and record an original song. We believe in celebrating lives, making memories and leaving legacies. If you'd like to find out more about the charity, you can check out our website, which is swansongproject.co.uk. Podcast features songwriters, and each episode I ask my guests to share with us one of their songs. We talk about how they wrote it, ask them to share with us a songwriting tip, and I also ask them to share a song that's meaningful to them in some way relating to bereavement. This episode features Al Bampton, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, today I'm here with Al Bampton. Thanks for joining me, Al. My pleasure, absolute pleasure, as always. So this is uh, the Swan Song Project podcast. Um, every episode I have a different songwriter on. I ask them to share with us one of their songs. Uh, we talk a little bit about how they wrote it. Uh, I ask them to share with us a songwriting tip. And I also ask them to share with us a song that's meaningful to them relating to bereavement. And before we get into this episode, I just want to let listeners know that uh, Al is someone that I uh, go back a long time with. Al was my uh, first guitar teacher back maybe 16, 17 years ago, something like that now. Oh. A long time ago. It was a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's great to still be in touch, and we've done a, a lot of gigs over the years together, and had a lot of good times. So I'm looking forward to to talking about the craft with you a bit more. Um, so what what song of yours did you choose to share with us today? Um, well, it was a song I wrote about 16 years ago, uh, 17 years ago. I mean, this is I've been writing songs literally since I was 14. So as I'm 60 this week, it's quite a long uh, back catalogue. Um, it's called On Your Mind, On Your Mind, and it's from a particular area. I'm not going to go too much into the other people involved in the song. It's about something in my life, um, a, sort of something that happened in my life with the people involved in it and everything else. And it's just, I don't mean, and this is the thing, I didn't mean to write the song. Um, I never really mean to write any songs, by the way. Um, if I've got something on my mind that's obviously either upsetting me or exciting me or whatever, or sometimes, as you know, I like a good rant, so that's often what a song is about, you know. And because I think that I naturally have plenty to say anyway, and probably a bit too much to say, when I'm playing my guitar, I just say things. So these songs never really... I'm not... When I have a lot of these songs, I don't actually mean to write them. Some of my... What I prefer is my better song, but it's up to other people to decide what's a good song or not on me. But my personal favourite song I've written, I've often just happened. You know, I've just been sat playing a guitar and something's on my mind and the two things correspond. So I didn't mean to write the song at all, but uh, it just turned up, which is lovely. <laughs> um, but it was, it's, I mean, what can I say too much? I mean, I don't really want to talk too much about the other person involved in this, but obviously it's a moment in my life which involves somebody, uh, still does, by the way, um, and it all came out good in the wash, you know, which is the, the way things should. But I do think people, if you write songs, one of the great things about writing songs is you can get things out of your chest and get things out. That's one of it's the wonderful things about writing any song, really. Some people don't write like that. If you write just for the money, you'll be putting things together just, which is fine. That's a perfectly top you know, way of doing things in art form, in a sense. Writing a pop song to make money is a serious skill. Some people are very good at it. I don't really look at it like that. I just write the song because it 
was coming. And I don't really then try and sell it to anybody. Mm. Some of my bands have sung my songs over the years, and if they'd got signed, we would have recorded them, but they didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> Different world back where I come from. Yeah. Great. Let's listen to it now. This is uh, On Your Mind by Al Bampton. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, brilliant. So that was uh, On Your Mind by Al Bampton. Um, yeah, so it was interesting you saying to like, obviously we're not going to talk too much about the people involved with it, but in terms of going back to the process of writing it, um, what you can remember, and also one thing that jumped out to me then was, has the situation, again, I'm kind of careful of like, want to respect what you want to talk about and not in regards to the people involved with it, but you mentioned there's the, it worked out well in the end so like you know that sometimes when songs meanings change i guess when you write one in a certain situation so that, that... well yeah when you're talking about things that are in your life obviously they can go in all sorts of different ways so when you write the song i mean you could find out 15 years later you know the world's moved on somewhere else you know but it's still that's still part of your life mm. and it's what you were thinking and feeling at the time so it's always relevant whether then that sort of shapes in uh, something that is sort of useful for your life or it could be detrimental, it could be bad, it could be good. It's really up to life, you know. You're, you you just write what you're thinking or feeling at the time about anything, you know. And as I say, the, the, there's another person involved in this and the reason why, I mean, they were very young at that time, but I don't really, I obviously don't know what that particular person would like me to say about this song, you know, so I won't put too much out about what the lyrics are, who the lyrics are about. But, I mean, a lot of people who know me very closely about it will know exactly what that song's about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the whole point, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in terms of writing the song, my usual process is usually I'm jamming. I'm not actually meaning to write a song. So, you know, with that one, I was sat and I can just literally, it's a C chord. And I just started doing that rhythm. And then the, and I always, when I'm playing chords, you won't necessarily see what I'm doing, but I'll move my fingers around and I'll look for notes in the scales. And that's often what I'll do, just jamming around the chords. So I'm playing a C, but I'll be looking for notes to put in that chord in the scale, and I don't really think about them in music, I just move my fingers around, it sounds crap, I don't know. I can think it all through, but I'm just usually exploring, 
And with that one, I just came up with something that did that. Which is like a little line down on the C chord. And I obviously liked it because I remember playing it for about five, ten minutes. And because I did that for five or ten minutes, the first melody line comes, which again, some nights, by the way, when I'm doing things like that, it comes, and other times I just end up jamming. (laughs) (laughs) And once I've got that, now, where I go next, that's interesting because I always find myself going to things I know I should go to. Mm. So I've become aware that Basically, you either learn, I can learn about what are the common chord sequences in music. So a big chord you go to from C is F. Huge numbers of songs. I've been playing these songs for 60 years, nearly 50 years, 50 years. Um, you know, so going to what's called chord one and four, I'll go there. I don't actually, I can't tell you whether I go there because my brain's mathematically telling me to go there or whether I just... I'm thinking of a tune that goes there. But I know what will happen is you either use knowledge to go to your next chord or you use something that you've learned that somebody else has done. Mm. And I think that's what people do often. The creative process for me is very much about learning things by other people, either academically or by just learning other people's songs and you find yourself copying them. So the fact he went to F is pretty box standard really on this C to F. What would make it sound different would be me attempting to do different lines on the F chord to see what I've already started rather than just going, this is what the song is. I think that's probably because I'm a guitar player, so I look mm. at everything from a guitar point of view. I'm more of a guitar player than a singer. Do you, you always start on the guitar then? Is that how you um, tend to go back to I've Because uh, usually that's my poor call. I don't mean to do that, but on a given evening, if I've got a bit of spare time, I just sit down and pick up the guitar. So it would start from the guitar because really I sat down to play it. And one night I might just play some nice little tunes just to entertain myself or whatever. Might do a bit of practice on something. Another night, I might just sit and jam on something. And so there, because I'm kind of coming from a guitar point of view anyway, I'm sitting there playing the guitar. The song will usually come from that point of view, but that's just the way I work. It's mm. uh, I'm not sitting down to write a song for an album that's coming out next week. So if I don't write a song, I don't care. <laughs> if that yeah. makes <laughs> I mean, I can do that, and I've done that with bands in the past where we've needed songs. And then I'll go and try and write a song for what they want. I've managed that many times in the past, but it's not my normal way of working. Yeah, yeah. And do you um, do you often get them done in one sitting then, when you get one of these ideas and you start, like... And, like, do you consciously think, you know, when you came up with that that piece... Did you think, oh, well, this might be a song about this situation, or did you just start singing and see what came out? Or do you have it, other bits of ideas that you come back to? Yeah, I mean, in in that respect, what would happen with me is, as you as you well know, I tend to rant a little bit about stuff. There'll be stuff on my mind, and so something's bothered me, or something's really on my mind. In that case, it's been on my mind for years. 
and the, the situation we were in. So, yeah, it's all part of my... And that all came out very quickly. I've probably written the entire song in about 30, 40 minutes. And then I usually record things and have a listen to them in the morning and see what I've got. <laughs> if, if when I get up and I think that's okay, it becomes a song that I'll play. And if I'm not so happy when I get up in the morning, it probably doesn't, I'll just forget it. Some of the things I've found, I've got recordings all over the place, set cassettes, songs here going back 30, 40 years. Because what was being interesting doing the gig on a night, on the, on the Sunday gig, is because there's only been me, usually I'd be involved in you and everybody else I know, and we'd be all having some fun doing a gig. I've just been stuck in my room on my own. So I've been looking back through my old songs. I've been digging up songs I wrote 30 years ago. I've completely forgotten I've written, so it's been quite fun. So this room is just full of cassettes from the 70s, <laughs> the 80s. Because <laughs> most of the songs, a lot of my best songs, I've forgotten I've written. I mean, I've been doing a couple recently that I'm really pleased I found. I totally forgotten I've written. <laughs> I've performed them for 25 years. But um, what does that feel like <laughs> finding them old ones? I mean, we've kind of obviously, and what you mentioned, there, you've been doing uh, some virtual shows, haven't you, during the lockdowns? Um, and like, I mean, we've just found it with with us getting back together as a band, trying to remember some of the songs after so long off has felt a bit strange, but obviously that's not nearly as long as some of the stuff you're talking about here. So what was that like going, did you just go through all of them and pick out ones you liked? And Well, yes, I would listen to, I mean, I found a cassette, you know, you'd find a cassette, I don't know, like one of the just box down the cassette. And I've got thousands of these all over the place and on the cassette would be, I don't know, I mean, one says on it, it says very old ideas. And that goes back <laughs> to them, and it is very old ideas. So. Um, I just listen to it, and if there's anything on it, I think, ooh, and most of the stuff, a good half of it, I've forgotten I've even done. And some of it is written for singers I just can't pretend, you know, I couldn't get close to. Because I do, when I'm in a band, I will write a song that suits the singer I'm in the band with. Mm. So obviously I've worked with some, well, not obviously, but I've been lucky enough to work with some extraordinarily brilliant singers over the last 30, 40 years. And that result is I can't sing all the things very well that I've written. <laughs> You know, it just doesn't suit my voice. But occasionally, there'll be things that really do, I think, just about... Because I'm not... I don't class myself as a singer anyway. I'm perfectly happy to sing, and I'm particularly like harmony. But I do like to work with quality singing, you know, top quality, if I can. And obviously, I've not been able to recently. You know, that's just... Uh, well, I have had a rehearsal with Kate and Lisa recently from the Deuce Cats, so fingers crossed, things might start moving in. A different direction. <laughs> We're all in that. Yeah, brilliant. Good to see you out playing again. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. So, so do you have um, the, ten, the ideas just tend to come naturally? And do you have things in the back pocket? And do you work on things like over a longer term, or do they tend to be those quicker songs that come out? No, there's most of the songs now tend to come out like that. Mm. I do have a back catalogue of things though, and I have used that. So, for example, I was once recording with a duo probably about 15 years ago, and I had a song, and the groove just reminded me of something I'd done yonks ago. So I went and listened to it, and it was a. I ended up taking that idea and putting it on the beginning of the new idea. So I did stick 
something I'd written 30 years ago to something I'd written about 10 years earlier and stuck them together and ended up with a song. So they, that process can happen. If I am needing stuff and writing for a, uh, an, you know, duo or trio, I will go back through my catalogue and see whether I've got stuff that's suitable. Uh, and occasionally that comes together well, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but, um, so I can do both. Uh, I can sort of you know, snip things I've done together. And I've, More and more, when I used to play in bands a lot more, they were playing original material, that was a lot more of a process going on. Mm. I'd have yeah. a, a verse, and will it go with that chorus? I mean, a song I wrote called um, Why Is It So Wrong, which is I wrote in the 80s for a band called The Armadillo Hat Band. That was two ideas that just fitted together, chorus and verse. And I remember finding the cassette with the verse on and thinking, oh, that'll go with. So that's how I used to work, was I'd collect ideas, put them together, and then sift through them and use them. But that, you know, I don't, I don't need to work like that, so I don't. So if the song comes, it comes. And if it doesn't, I just don't worry about it. But I don't have uh, anybody to write for, you know, so it's not mm. a big um, but yeah, most of the my what I would call my best songs, and I don't mean that they're the best songs, just the songs I love to sing that I've written, that I you know I really enjoy performing. Most of those have all come in one go, lyrics and everything. So I assume I've got a lot on my mind when I start, and that's why it's demanding to come out. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it seems like a great like lots of people talk about you know that. And obviously to do anything creative like really benefits when you're relaxed and then you're just letting things flow through you. And when you're if the way you're working sounds like you know, you don't put any pressure on yourself really, you're just kind of going with the moment of whatever you're feeling and what you're going through and no, that's you let the sound come out. What would I would but I don't do that deliberately. That's mm. just I think that's just natural position where my life is. Because I don't write to make money, I don't write for records, I don't write for people to have singles. Therefore, my natural default is I'm just writing because I happen to be writing nowadays. So there is, it, it, there's an, you know, there is no stress put on that from an external requirement, if that makes sense. So I consider that lucky, but that is also unlucky in the sense that other people would have wanted to sell a record and make a bit of money off it, you know, whereas I've never tried to do that. Yeah. But it's not really. I'm not really, it's interesting because I've always been involved in the music industry, but I've never really liked the music industry. So I've always been trying to make my own living and do my thing connected to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a lot of that comes from touring when I was younger and things like that. You know, so, so it was a pretty grimy scene at times back in the day. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, go on. Yeah, another question I was going to ask you, which is kind of slightly different. Um, going off, but you, you've written quite a lot of instrumentals as well, haven't you? I'm, I'm probably more of an instrument. I mean, I've written plenty over the years, but I, yeah. do, uh, I do have an instrumental at the moment called September, which actually wrote the week I got married, so it's quite a bouncy, happy thing, because obviously that's how I was feeling at the time. And that gets played every time I do a gig. I mean, I even got asked, uh, you know, when I was thinking of dropping it to not drop it, so... I'm quite pleased I've written something that is popular in the sense that it's not well known, but the people who you know, listen to it like it. So. Yeah. But I've written a lot of instrumentals, but that's certainly one of the ones that goes down the best. Yeah. 
I'm always interested in um, in the writing of instrumentals. Like, of do you find that different to writing something with lyrics? Like, or like, is it pretty much the same process? And you're like, whether you have obviously you said that one was written about the the month you got married. You know, like whether the I guess because I'm I'm kind of generally a lyrically focused person. Um, and I have written some instruments, but never ones that we've kind of stuck to or become a proper thing. Um, but yeah, how, how do you find that process of writing an instrument compared to writing something with, with lyrics? Again, um, it just comes or it doesn't. Yeah. Because I'm not, it doesn't have to finish. So that, that day, I remember that week, I just sat down every day in the first week, first day, that's when that week came <laughs> Was just jamming around the curls of G and C. So, because I liked it, I kept playing it every day. And then Joe was just in a really good space that week. But I mean, bit by bit, Joe every day added something to it, and it all seems to naturally just add. Now, when I'm composing, there's absolutely no doubt about the composition stuff. There's a lot of knowledge I've got from colleges and places which I'm using without really thinking about it. A lot of the structures, when I look at them, I've not thought about it while I've done it, but I actually can see the structure I've done. It's something I've learned. Um, you know, the, the notes I'm going to tonics or dominance are things I've learned. And yet I've learned them in different ways. I mean, because I used to jam over music a lot more than people do today. I mean, I learned to play the guitar by playing over records four hours a day. What I learned, what I've learned over the years is that, that, that what that did for me was give me, I just picked things up that people like Harry Clapton and Jeff Beck and all these great players were doing without ever knowing I was. Because the interesting thing is when I got to college, I discovered a lot of things I did. They were surprised I did because I hadn't learned that I did. And I'd actually mm. then I realised I'd nicked it all of Clapton and Beck and all these great players who did it probably naturally. Mm. There's two ways to get a, a, a good... And what we're talking about really here is that when you're on a note, it's moving to another note. That's what makes a tune work, is that you go somewhere and come back. And there are set structures in that. And by the way, blues players use them, jazz players use them. We actually are all using very similar structures. I mean, I've been tearing Beethoven to pieces for a kid in Hong Kong uh, the last few days for him to witness studying Beethoven. And, you know, the principles are actually the same in all the music. Mm -hmm. I think your blues players picked it up by ear because that's how I got it in the first place. But you're definitely going to know and coming back and the interesting thing is I don't know whether I go to those notes because I learnt it off Eric Clapton or I go to those notes because I was told to do that at college but I seem to go to those notes <laughs> that makes <laughs> so you have two notes in a key let's call it dominant and then you have the first note which is called it tonic and that's your first note so you're in G that's a G those two notes are all the way through this piece of music. Everything I'm doing is moving between those two notes. Did I think about it at the time? Not in the way that perhaps 
I could explain it to you. Mm. And I think when you play as long as I have, and you've studied as much as I have, and you've analysed music, I think there's just this mush goes on. And I couldn't actually tell you which bit is my brain deciding by maths to go somewhere or just go in there because Eric Clapton did. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's kind of ingrained. Like I was listening yeah. to a composer the other day talking about, you know, writing um writing music without playing it, you know, without you know, so just just writing, you know, and not you obviously knowing in the head what, what that's all gonna sound like. Um but the idea of doing it that or or just letting it kind of naturally come out of your fingers without I guess it's, it might be hard for people who don't play an instrument like that to understand what that's like. You know, like you said when we're just jamming and just kind of letting letting your hands move and seeing what comes out. Is that the kind of is that what you kind of mean that you just yeah. kind of thought you're just playing and, and it's just going somewhere you're not thinking like right from here I'm going to go to here. Well, yeah, and the word not thinking is an interesting one because you're not thinking, but you'll have been there before. Mm. See, with somebody like myself, I play. I mean, I currently play about four hours of classical music from memory, and I played some of these tunes for twenty years. And this is Bach and all these people. This is some of the greatest composition stuff you could ever play. And I've been playing it for 20 years. And it's brilliant. Now, there's absolutely no doubt about it. There's things in there that I will just go nick. And I don't, you know, the word nick now becomes a really bad thing to say. But actually, that is the way all music has always been composed. What happened originally was that people like Beethoven, particularly Bach, start kicking the ball off, but the, all these composers would do something. Most of what they did was stuff that other people had done. And then the great composers, the people thought something new to do that nobody had ever done. That's the big thing. But then everybody learns what they've done and then uses the ideas in that composition. It's the way we learn to compose. I actually think the other way is that people learn songs. Ten, you know, if you look at Bob Dylan, I used to have a thing on my wall at school when I was teaching at school that said Bob Dylan learned 2,000 songs before he wrote one. And I call that putting it in the bank. I mean, if he's, if he's learned and performed the song 2,000 songs, you can see why for eight years it was just coming out of it, you know. Yeah. Because it'll be nicking without meaning to you your brain will go to different places from different parts of these songs when you play i have noticed as well with teaching at schools that as the kids have learned to play less and less and less and learn less and less songs every year which is certainly compared to the way it was say i mean a pupil of mine 20 years ago might have learned 40 songs in a year where sometimes i've only learned three at the end of the year you can tell that composition is becoming harder for these kids. Because if you've only got two songs you've learned, if you nick something from them, it's bloody obvious what you've got <laughs> in your yeah. head. Whereas if you've learned 2,000 songs, you're never aware quite where you've got that from. Yeah, yeah. Work. You know? And because you've nicked something else from somewhere else and jumbled it all up, it doesn't quite sound like something. Yeah, and that's because there's so many elements to these as well. Yeah. So like, and we've you know, like Dylan's a great example of it. Like, he's he's been criticised for all, of using bits of different lyrics, hasn't he, from songs. Um, but like, so it might be like you take a part of a lyric from one song and have it with you know a similar chord sequence one from another, or it might even just be the way something's phrased, or you know the kind of theme, or the way the rhymes work, or you know, there's all these different elements to it, isn't there? Whether it's to do with the lyrics or to do with the musical elements of it. 
I mean, lyrics uh, you can you can. T- I mean, I have. I mean, I have quoted the Dylan lyric and turned it around. I mean, I wrote a song which ended up being called "The Times Need to Be a Changing." Mm. Now, I mean, there's absolutely no question where I got that from. Yeah. Um, and I use that as a, you know, I'm not pretending I didn't get that from Dylan. And the whole song is about you know now women we need to be a changing, whereas we were happy with it changing then. You know, so there's a point of the way I did that song and the way I did I mean, the lyric came and told them and I smiled. <laughs> Just so we'll go with that. You know. Yeah, there was, there was a great there was a book I read not long ago um, called Why Dylan Matters. And it was a uh, an academic had written this thing and it was all about about Dylan's genius, really. But it was a lot of it was, he did talk about that a lot of how the, you know, it's not, it's not nicking something. It's kind of like embedding that in in the new piece so like so you know you using that line um it's like then what you're doing that that line brings with it everything the times they were changing has so it's rather yeah. than trying to rewrite the whole thing it's taking the thing as it is and putting it in a new context in some kind of way well, well that's exactly how it works you've you've taken because the meat you take the meaning of the original song with you into the new song and then give it a slant from your point of view, or from the way what the way you're singing, or what you're singing about at the time. So, <clears throat> but definitely quoting that song means that there's a lot of imagery comes with that line that comes from the original song, obviously. So, I mean, it's not really. I mean, for me, this is the thing. I mean, Beethoven and Mozart used to take each other's stuff deliberately. And they've always done that. And, but there was no money in the same that you weren't sticking. Now it's all about money and mm. therefore plagiarising is huge. People used to just take an idea and go, I can do that better. And it was part of the fun of composing. And so they used to, or if they're inspired by something like the piece of Beethoven that's been looking at with his kid today, he was inspired by a piece by Mozart. So... And he loved the piece and he played the piece. So what he did was take the same idea and do his version, which turned into one of the greatest piano pieces ever, you know. But nobody worried about the fact that without Mozart, we didn't have this piece of music. It was just mm-hmm. part of the process. And I think people who have got a bit hung up in the money world, worrying about who owns what. I mean, it's a chord sequence. There's only six, six chords we use in the key. There's a seventh, but we don't use it very often. There's other chords we can add and seven notes in the scale, guys. You know, there's, I mean, we've got eight billion songs here because <laughs> they're all doing the same thing, you know. It's really much, it's about what you sound like when you do it and what you mean, you know, whether you, you know, some people sing and everybody listens to them. Other people sing well, but nobody does. It's Bob Marley is a classic example of that. First time I heard him, I was about 13, and he was not singing lead. Peter Tosh was, but in the morning at school, we were talking about the guy with the dreadlocks at the end. Even before Bob Marley ran the Whalers, he was he stuck out in my mind the day after we'd saw him on the old grey whistle test, probably about 1970-something. First time I'd ever heard reggae in my life, by the way. That was an experience. I mean... In the modern world, everything's so in you know. There's nothing in the world you can't hear on YouTube. I'm not quite sure you have those kind of epiphany things. Where I mean, I've never heard reggae. Yeah, I think we've had this conversation before about like just trying to like so hard for me to imagine what that would be like. I think we talked about it with Santana as well when you said the first time you heard Santana, 
Um, and like, yeah, so for me growing up in a world where like, you get tastes of, of most cults, even if you don't hear the, you know, the purest form, but you have some idea of what these different cultures' musics are like. But back back then, like, you had no idea what reggae was. Well, I've never even seen a Perry. I mean, when I saw the Santana thing on Woodstock, I'd never seen anybody play congas. I didn't know what they were. <laughs> I mean, we had no instruments from the rest of the world in Britain at that time. People didn't play those instruments. Congas, bongo, all this stuff. And that percussion section on the Woodstock film for Santana, I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah, that was an influence because I'd never seen rhythm play like that, you know, at all. So... Going to see those films when I was a teenager was a huge part of my musical sort of, if you like, development. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you end up sort of taking on board, you call it Nicky and you do whatever you call it, you like, you take on board all the things you watched and heard, more importantly heard, and then, um, you know, you tend to use all of those things the rest of your life as well. But um, fascinating stuff, really, all of yeah. this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Hi everyone, I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. Sorry for the interruption. Just want to drop a quick note in here to say that the Swanson Project is a registered charity. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to consider supporting us, uh, there are several ways you can donate through the website. It all goes towards supporting more people. Limited term allowances to write and record their original songs. If you'd also like to show your support um, for the podcast, we always appreciate any reviews you can leave us. Uh, you know, likes, shares, subscribes, all that kind of business. Um, it always really helps. Uh, so if you'd like to do any of that, it's really much appreciated. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Um, and that's not a good point to move into, into section two of the podcast. This is where I ask my guests to share with us a songwriting tip. So we kind of we, we generally cover quite a lot of tips in the first section. But uh, have you got a particular tip that you'd uh, like to share with us? Al? Well, yeah, that's it. I've been thinking about this one because obviously I don't do this out of the book. I was thinking, mm. right, well, okay, so. The tip I would probably give everybody is that find songs that you like, that other people do, that do different things to what you're used to them doing. Maybe a jazzier song, maybe a bit funkier, groovy, and learn songs because you will use what you learn. So if you learn a jazz, a bit more of a jazz tune, Okay, you've learned there's different things. Those chords you just learned, you might start using a different rhythm. But you got the chords from the jazz tune, mm. or you might start funking them up, you know. You, know, you can do all sorts. I personally can't give you a tip that just teaches you how to write a song, because that's not how I function. Um, the but I would say you know and what I do tell my pupils to do who write songs is if you like a song go and actually work out the chords exactly and try and figure them in relation to the key so you can actually know what it is you like mm. and then that sound you then hopefully will work with yourself because at the end of the day we tend to we'll write things around songs that we like or ideas that we like so that could be all sorts of different things. But if you've got something you like, try and work out why it is you like it. Because there's a musical reason you like it. You like that sound. So if you can work out what makes that sound, you can have some fun yourself playing that sound. Um, so that's probably the best thing I'd say to anybody. Just learn lots of songs. 
Yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice. And yeah, I think it's one that I don't think we've had that yet on the podcast. And so I think this episode maybe 69 or something like that. And it seems like, um, yeah, like quite a straightforward piece of advice that makes a lot of sense. But I'm kind of surprised. It's, I, don't, I don't think it's come up before. Um, but yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, um, I think the example you gave there, what you were playing, was really good in terms of like, People, I think sometimes people get bound by a genre if they think like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a rock musician or I'm a jazz musician, something like that. So they don't go outside of that genre. Um, but what you were saying then is like, if you're drawn to anything, whatever that is, learning something about it doesn't mean you're then going to play in that style all the time. It means you can take what you learn from that and combine it with your other influences and it's going to fit into that mixing pot. I think that's the exact point. The point is we're all using the same thing, which is a major scale or a minor scale. But when you hear a jazz player playing in it or a blues player or a rock player or swing band from the you know the 30s or whatever, these things sound like the different universes, but actually the structures of what you're working in are similar. So this is why people like Hendrix, they turn up in sort of the 1960s with a lot of jazz chords that, people hadn't used in rock and he just brings them in you know this is what people call a jazz chord by the time Hendrix is finished with that's that chord and he got it from jazz song he just decided to do something else with it and we ended up with Purple Ice, which is like <laughs> fantastic. And therefore he gave us that chord in rock music. But he didn't make the chord up. Mm. He just applied the chord in a completely unique way at that time, which is why Hendrix is so important. It's, you know, people have these silly arguments about who's better and all this stuff. I find it always really weird. The people who are important in music are the people who give us something and look after they've lived life is different and if you can add one thing like that that's really exceptional and the biggies have loads you know and that that makes them the most important people not necessarily whether it's so and so you know all these arguments i see on the internet about who's a better guitarist you know eddie van halen jimmy and i just find it pointless you know but what a person gives you, what a person gives the world musically is seriously important, you know, because if you didn't have Hendrix, we might not have had that chord on the rock world and oh, that's written a lot of songs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's the kind of thing the Beatles did and everything else. So yeah, you because we're all actually playing the same thing, really, it's really just about understanding that. And therefore, if you learn something from, you know, a jazz song. There's no reason. My favourite funk chord I got for playing jazz, which is that one. That's a minor chord. I won't go into what. But you know, you put me on a funk. But I learned the chord playing jazz song. And then just applied it, you know, to sort of a funk group. But yeah, I mean, all that's the kind of way it works, in my opinion. You know, I mean, obviously, my opinion is my opinion, and that's. But I do see music really is about using all, and that's what great music's always been. People have done things in different ways. Bob Marley was the same chords everybody used to play reggae. So it was all A major, D major, A major, nothing special about the chords. But this, wow, you know, that voice and that rhythm was just fantastic. And he had something to say. 
Mm. And he had lots to say and lots to talk about, um, and quite rightly. Um, and we still should have been listening to him a long time ago. You know, it's the world's only just beginning to think about some of the things he told us. But uh, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Oh, thanks for that. That's a really good tip. I think. Um, Let's move into section three now. Uh, this is where I ask my guests to share with us a song that's uh, sounds meaningful to them in some way relating to bereavement. And what I do here is I put the link in the description. So if you're listening to this podcast at home or watching it on YouTube, uh, the link will be in the description. If you want to pause this, you can go listen to the song and come back and we'll be able to chat about it. Uh, so what song did you choose for us here, Al? Um, well, again, I had to think about this one because um, I've not really got any songs connected to bereavement of people around me over the years. I mean, I've lost a lot of friends over the years. Bereavement is part of just moving through the world. You know, it's um, it's quite astonishing, really. Particularly as a, as a musician, I started to live one or two friends who were older than mine, you know, 30 years ago. So it's been an ongoing thing. Um, so um, to me, all the music I played with those people is part of that. This song is just something that's made me think about death in um, I don't know whether to think about, how do I word this? Um, in the, through the ages, like, in a sense, this, this song was written, probably the words, nobody really knows, by the way, but it's probably 300 years old, Wayfaring Stranger. And this is from a time when religion, obviously, in Christian Christianity was absolutely huge. And what you're really listening to is a guy talking about moving through an absolutely horrible world, which is the world most of those people lived in, and getting salvation. Because that's what they were sold, salvation. You, you live your time on earth, and then you get to go to this wonderful place. And for most people living today, the idea that you're just living to go to somewhere else at the end of mm. your life would be, un, you know, unbelievable. Uh, the amount of pleasure and enjoyment people want during their lives now, it, it kind of changed, it makes me think about all the different eras and ages. I think the song's quite important for me. My dad played it to me when I was a little kid years ago because he was into all the New Orleans blues and jazz. And it's a song that went over with the Pilgrims to America um, and has become a blues song like a lot of those songs have. But, you know, I mean, Wayfaring Stranger is going, he's travelling through this uh, world of woe, you know, and he's going, he's dying, you know. There is no sort of toil, sickness or danger in that bright land to which I go. You know, I'm going there to see my mother. Uh, she says she'll meet me when I come. You know, I just think it's quite an interesting song a for its subject matter but also it makes me compare eras mm. and i think there's a lot in music that people don't really think about you can learn a lot about how life people lived life what lives were like by listening to the words that were lit, written 300 years ago as opposed to last week uh, and then really this song as well I've, i i mean my dad's still here but uh, my dad lost a leg about two years ago and uh, we weren't sure how long it'd last. So I kind of thought, well, we might be having a funeral soon. Um, and I planned to see, this was a song he introduced me to when he was, uh, when I was a little boy, you know, probably about 13, 12, 11, I can't remember, obviously. So it was a song I decided I was gonna sing at my dad's funeral. Now, thankfully my dad is still here, hobbling around on his one leg, causing tons of grief with everybody. 
But, you know, I mean, at some point, I'll probably end up doing what I intended to do, which is, you know, so the song is connected to probably a future funeral that I'll be, well, I've made my father of that at some point. Yeah, well, is, yeah. yeah, well, I'm glad, I'm glad he's uh, still here anyway, and he's, he's, he's doing all right. Um, well, he's pretty, I mean, he's 85 old leg and still going along. He was out, sat out in the garden with a cigar a couple of weeks ago, you know, a little bottle of beer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Have you, have you, have you talked talk to him about potentially playing the, the song at the funeral? Um, I haven't, actually. Uh. Um, and the thing is, at the moment, because his memory is so short term, if I did talk to him about it, he'd forget the following day, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so... Whether I have a conversation with him about it, I'm not too sure, but I might do one day. Mm. But he has incredible long-term memory. So watching people is incredible. You know? So you can tell you what happened in a football match in 1972 up in St. James's Park. But the fact the doctor phoned yesterday, and it was fantastic yeah. watching. Is he a musician as well, you know? No, he's a, what he was a lover. He always wanted to be, and he was a lover of music, which is partly why he put up with me. Mm. <laughs> He loved his music. He was a huge New Orleans jazz fan. He went to New Orleans. Uh, sort of big thing of his life was to, when he got to 60, he was 65 and tired, he went to New Orleans for a couple of weeks and he spent time of his life watching all the bands. Fantastic. Yeah. That was his dream of his entire life. Went over with the Ken Collier uh, sort of congregation, I don't know what they call them, but, uh, so toddler and spent two came back cooking Cajun chicken. Nice. <laughs> um, have you done a version of the song before? So like obviously and it's amazing you know, what you're saying about it. it's such an old song and I'm always fascinated with songs that live that long and kind of think you know there's they're the ones that must have that real deep truth in them that's still relevant and they still kind of feel so yeah so meaningful to many people. And it's been interpreted by many, many people over the years. And uh, so the version you sent me, which I think which I'll put in the uh, link here, is the Eric Bibb version, which is a fantastic version. Um, Johnny Cash did it on one of his later albums as well, didn't he? Um, have you heard uh, Rhiannon Giddens' version of it? Yes, that is gorgeous. That's one of my all-time favourites of it. Um, yeah, amazing. He's a bit special. She does some really lovely stuff. Um, have I... Well... I kind of, um, I mean, where did I hear that first? I mean, my fat cat, it was a jazz band, I think, the first time I heard it. So I've heard so many people do it. Mm. I have only played it myself once with a pupil, and that was a girl called Gabby, who I'm not sure you may have remember, a singer called Gabby, great guitar player, great singer. Um, and she was about 16, and she came around. So we were get, I was getting us to do a little gig with us to sort of up, to really push her. And so she came around and said, can we do this Ed Sheeran song called, uh, and it was um, this song, Wayfaring Stranger. And I listened to um, Ed Sheeran's version. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to be insulting or anything. It just wasn't my kind of thing. And by the way, it was brilliant. It's technically brilliant, the way loops, all the rest of it, the harmonies. But I got the impression for what I said to her was, I don't think he knows what the song's about. So I played an Eric Bibbs version of the song and she just went, wow. I said, well, he gets what this song is about. He's, he's got the feel of the music and what the lyrics are about. Uh, and Ed Sheeran's was absolutely brilliant, you know, but it wasn't real to me 
it was using the song to produce what he did rather than how do I do this song? That's the difference. So I kind of did an arrangement for Gabby and we did that in a gig, which I've got, I think there's a video on YouTube of that with Gabby, Wayfair and Stranger. And we alternated the vocals, did some harmonies, and I was trying to get her to do some soloing as well. So she probably won't thank me for that. There's a solo, and she jammed a solo when she was 16 live. Um, I'm not sure what she thinks of that now. So. It was brilliant, really good. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's so I, I have performed the song myself, um, but not too often. And I did the song years ago with a blues singer, but that's about 30 years ago. Mm. We didn't do it very long, two or three songs. I think we did two or three gigs for that, but we turned out a lot of material. I was wondering how it would, how it's, you know, how you, well, I guess what, what you anticipate it feeling like if, you know, if you're, yeah, how do you feel in general about potentially playing at your dad's funeral? Like, is that something that you think? Um, I'd you... have to tell that you, yeah, interesting one. I mean, for myself, I'm for the moment, it feels absolutely fine and mm. it will feel great and all the rest of it because I want to do it for it. Um, now, obviously, what I'm going to feel like the day I stand up and do it, I'm not entirely sure, <laughs> so I can't, <laughs> but. I am reconciled to my father not being here. I remember my mum, you know, it, 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 when my mum's 89. So to me, I, what I think was de- the difficult death to deal with is when it's death early. Mm. You know, whether that be somebody you've lost or you yourself, I don't know what that would be like, obviously, if it was myself. But the hardest to me is when you've got somebody 30 years of age, you know, or something like that, and going to a funeral like that. That's how I've had a couple of experiences of that. And they are certainly the funerals that sort of emotionally hit the hardest. But I think that's a normal. To me, there's a time. Mm. You know, in cricket, as my dad's a cricketer, he used to call it a good innings. Yeah. So, You've had your good innings, that's fine. You know, in a sense, you, we've all got to be happy with that. You know, so you know, I'm, I'm quite comfortable at the moment with the fact my father will be going at some point. But then again, ask me that question on the day he does, and I suspect you'll get a slightly different uh, response. Yeah, uh, it's just that, like, I think with particular songs as well, like the, you know, I've had it where I've, I've, you know, felt fine getting up to perform something, but then a certain song just hits, you know, just resonates in that way. I'm particularly singing a one that obviously goes back with you and your dad a long time and is kind of related to the thing of, um, yeah, just what that, what that feel like at the time. But, yeah. Well, that's actually what this little conversation has made me think is what I might do is record this for my dad mm. and put it on a because I can uh, make videos and put them on things, do a little recording of a few things that his son's done, and I might chuck that one in for him. Yeah. So he gets to hear it as well. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> and that, that's just, uh, I've just thought of that in this conversation. So uh, I think that's uh, a must. Uh, Brilliant. Yeah, well, that seems like a good point to wrap this up as well. Um, so thanks a lot for your time, Mark. Really nice talking to you. Well, as always, um, I've always got plenty to say to you. I don't know whether you want it or not, but uh, <laughs> so um, yeah. I mean, I've really enjoyed myself, and uh, thank you for inviting me along to the podcast. And by the way, I think the Swan Song Project is probably one of the finest ideas any of my ex pupils have ever come up with. Right. Thank you very much, Al. Thank you. I appreciate Anybody it. Anybody who is listening to this, support this, but I suspect they will. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and anything else you want to mention when you're here? You're still doing the 
the Sunday evening? Uh, the Sunday evening thing it will be going on, but I'm hoping that it's going to turn into a proper gig. I mean, the, the thing about the Sunday, it wasn't supposed to be what it was. It was banned before COVID, by the way. It was going to be a gig, 30 people in a room paying to come in and watch the gig, and at the same time selling tickets online so people could watch online at the same time. So I planned it to be a live gig, but we're trying then to build up an online following for the gig as well as a real life following for the gig. That was planned a year before COVID. We get to sort of around about, well, March last year, I was planning to kick this up about April, May, COVID around. So I ended up going online myself and playing just to sort of keep, you know, I was still here doing something. <laughs> now, we're in the difficult period at the moment now because we're back in, the, I've got into the venue, but we haven't, can't get people in yet. And so I've not been earning much money. I mean, sometimes I've earned money on the internet, sometimes I haven't, but it hasn't mattered. But obviously, once I start bringing guests and things. So this, we're in the important sort of six or seven months of where we go, how we develop that. Because you've got so many things with COVID, like it's okay yeah. that saying we can put 30 people in a room, but if 30 people don't want to come and sit next to each other, there's, we've really, I'm not going to make any judgments on what's going to happen. We'll just see how everybody is, you know. I mean, it's been a rough year and a half in terms for many people. And people are psychologically, you know, they've got different slants on it all. So there's, there's no right or wrong, in my opinion. You just have to deal with the way it is. Yeah, yeah. I'll put the link in the description anyway. If people can check out the uh, yes, Sunday Evening Project. Um, so this is something. I hope we're looking at one probably in August, or we might kick it off in September. But I'm not doing one this month because I'm going away for my birthday. Nice. Yeah, we'll enjoy. <laughs> one in July. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy your birthday as well, Al. And uh, thanks for your time. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. I'll be back with another episode soon.